Hey, it's Fletcher. Just a quick note before we get going today. We can tell from our numbers there are a lot more of you listening to us lately. So we're thrilled about that, of course, and welcome to everybody who's found us over the past couple of months. Certainly a number of you must have returned to us after a podcast hiatus that sort of happened across the board during the worst days of the pandemic. We wanted to let you know that on your podcast app, you'll only find the last 20 episodes of the podcast. Being a part of NPR's podcast platform is great, but maybe the biggest drawback is that they only allow hosting of the last 20 episodes. There are, in fact, 70 episodes prior to the one you're listening to right now that we've recorded, and all of those right now are available at kmuw.org. That's where we host everything. You can also download the KMUW app if you'd like and just listen to You're Saying It Wrong if you have no other use for public radio in Wichita, Kansas. And changes are going to happen soon that will allow for hosting of all of those episodes through your podcast app, but that hasn't happened just yet. And since there are so many more of you listening right now, I just wanted to drop in and let you know where you could find all of those episodes going back a couple of years now. So if you'd like to check those out now, you can do that again at kmuw.org. You can also just wait until those changes are made. Hopefully it won't be too long. And of course, I'll come back here and let you know when that's happened. So either way, we're glad you're here now, and let's do this. Nuclear. Now is it crick or creek? Coyote or coyote? Sometimes I say library. Welcome to You're Saying It Wrong. I'm Fletcher Powell, and each episode we turn to the people who literally wrote the book on this, sister and brother team Kathy and Ross Petrus, and we'll dive into what we get wrong and sometimes what we get right when we try to speak this weird English language. Today we're returning to some words that we use sometimes and we don't necessarily know what they mean. This is sort of one of our favorite topics here. I think all of us use words from time to time that maybe we're not totally sure what they mean and we're also kind of sometimes counting on other people not to know what they mean so that we can sound smart when we use them. And so we're going to jump into some of those today. Uh, Kathy and Ross, these are words that you yourselves weren't necessarily totally sure of the meanings of. Yeah, I call them blip-over words, too. It's not necessarily words that I would use or Kathy would use. They're also words that you're going to see. We've got one from a New Yorker uh, magazine article. They're words that I kind of think I know. Maybe I'm not sure, and I'm too lazy to pick up my phone and try to get the exact definition. Yeah, I think that part kind of nails it right there, that I'm too lazy to go look it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is, I think many of us feel that way. <laughs> I mean... As we also thought since last week, you know, we thought it'd be a good idea to take last time we did, um, you know, the whole thing about grammar and so we thought we'd take a break from grammar and syntax, you know, and like, like how to use myself, um, which actually gets to the very first word, Fletcher. Do you know exactly what syntax means? Syntax? I think I always thought it was the order that words are put in. Is that right? Is that close? It's very close. (laughs) Damn it. (laughs) I'll give you a technical definition, but your your definition was even better. Syntax is the collection of rules and guiding principles in a language that determines, here we go, how to arrange words, phrases, and clauses to create sentences or texts. So you, you hit it around the head. And so I think I know this because of Yoda. <laughs> that's, a, that's a very interesting thing. You're right, though. Right? Go on. Yeah, Sorry. we all know, of course, that Yoda puts w- words out of order, or at least 
in a different order from what we're used to. And uh, so I think sometime, somewhere along the line, as I was a kid growing up with Star Wars, I saw that word syntax associated with what Yoda was doing. And that's pretty much how I remember basically what it is. Yeah, because I think a lot of people, you ask them, what, what is syntax? And, and I've got to admit, in the past, when I was younger, I would have been one of them. You just sort of say, oh, yeah, you know, uh, syntax. It's like, you know, grammar and, uh, <clears throat> you know, like that. You know, and there you have it. But yes, the, the key is the notion of order. Which, I mean, in particularly in languages like English, makes it makes a great it, great deal of difference. Languages like Latin, for example, which are so-called inflected languages, where the ending tells you something, aren't as necessarily uh, bound to word order as is English. But syntax can be confusing. Sometimes syntax can be correct, but it doesn't really help you understand what's going on. And Kathy can read a syntactically correct sentence. Do you want to read that, Kathy, or not? Um, I was going to, but I just wanted to first, I'm sorry, Russ, I'm going to cut you off and, and we'll go back to that in one second. I was going to say the whole key of syntax is is just that it's, it's, it's the question of it comes from a putting together an order is the meaning of the word itself. So it's the order is the key, as Ross said. So yeah, here's the sentence Ross was referring to. It's courtesy 19th century grammarian Gould Brown and his book, The Grammar of English Grammars. Now this sentence is syntactically correct, i.e. It, it, the rules apply, the, the rules that it uses are correct rules. Here we go. This exceeding trifling whittling Considering ranting, criticizing, concerning adopting fitting wording, being exhibiting transcending learning, was displaying, notwithstanding ridiculing, surpassing boasting, swelling reasoning, respecting, correcting, erring writing, and touching, detecting, deceiving, arguing during debating. <laughs> <laughs> that, believe it or not, is correct. <laughs> but normally syntax helps us make sense. <laughs> And like all languages have certain syntax. Like I said earlier about inflected languages like Latin, even with Latin, there's certain word orders that you can use, certain that you cannot use. But let's move on to another wonderful word. This is being misused a lot more recently. We both have noticed this. And I'm going to read to you a USA Today network, uh, the Baxter Report, with this word in here. For many, it was an apocryphal moment one which will be remembered for a lifetime. Okay, Fletcher, what is wrong with that sentence or correct with that sentence? And if it's wrong, tell us why. Well, apocryphal doesn't really work for me there. Um, it's certainly not with the rest of the sentence. It doesn't lead to the rest of the sentence. Um, but s something that's apocryphal is maybe um, dubiously sourced, uh, something along those lines? Precisely. Okay. That, that was a very nice, neat, succinct definition. Yeah, we had of doubtful or questionable authenticity, but that's exactly what you're saying. Yeah, that's that's apocryphal. Does the word come from the apocrypha? It comes actually all the way back, really, to the ancient Greek, um, which is apocryphos, which means hidden. And that comes from the verb apocrypto, uh, um, which means to hide away. And then that word came to be described in Christian literature as the Apocrypha, which are uncanonical, un, uh, de not definite Jewish and Christian uh, Bible part of the part of the Bible. And so it was seen as sort of dubious, hidden, 
not really canonical, basically. And then it extended, then it went on from that and extended to cover things that are false or unreal as well. I think that the term apocrypha now does have a negative. I do think that the, the knee-jerk response to those who are possibly not religious scholars or whatever is apocrypha you do think of as, as in, a, in a more negative sense or in a, in a it's fake sense. I do think it has more of a, a, more of a negative feel to a lot of people than it ought to. Exactly. I agree with you. Because I think you can, you know, you can tell a story about a famous person uh, that that maybe doesn't have a first person source that you can point to. And, and it's a fun story. Right. And you say, well, now it's apocryphal, but mm -hmm. I agree. We do that. Actually, we, we do a, a series of collections of quotes and a number of times we love the quote and we'll we'll put, you know, I don't know, whoever uh, Anthony Bourdain, you know, apocryphal, but probably, you know, Anthony Bourdain. Exactly. I don't think there's really a negative, necessarily a negative connotation. And actually, with the original apocryphal books of the Bible, when the when the councils talked about them, they viewed the apocryphal books as worthy of study. They felt they were not divine, but they were worthy of study. And I think that's the case with apocryphal nowadays, to some degree. It's worthy of being said, even if we're not sure the person we say. Oh, you see, but what I'm saying is I think that I think that there is a negative connotation now more often than not. I think that apocryphal, it, it, instead of the hidden, I think that it's often used now is in, in a negative sense. It's apocryphal. It's like, ugh, that's just apocryphal. Really? I don't, I don't see that. Do you see that. what I'm saying? I don't see it. I think it might be there a little bit for some people. I, I get that idea, mm. at least, when people are saying, what I want to do, will you go back and read that sentence that you originally read? Yeah, actually, Kathy, I think Kathy might be right. When you say doubtful, doubtful has a slightly negative tinge to it. Right. Okay. Oh, for many, it was an apocryphal moment. One which will be remembered for a lifetime. Okay, yeah, I really have no idea what word that guy wanted to use right there. What we found is, is more often lately is people seem to be using the phrase apocryphal to mean, like in that case, an, uh, an apocryphal moment. It's momentous. It's aha, you know, and, and it's, it's almost as if it's like an epiphany as opposed to something spurious. It's something like, wow. Yeah, that's weird to me. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't know why you would choose the word apocryphal to put there. It doesn't sound necessarily momentous to me. Um, and and mm -hmm. it doesn't even have a it doesn't have a meaning that's anywhere close to that where it might bleed over into there. I'm just wondering why in the world apocryphal is starting to pop up that way. I wonder if it's apocalyptic the person was referring to. Uh, maybe. I guess we'd have to have the context for that sentence to, to know, although the rest of it uh, makes me feel like it sounded like it was something that might be kind of good. Um, well, yeah, I don't know. Actually, though, when you think about it, apocalyptic would be sort of interesting because it has the same uh, root, part of the same root word, because the calyptic mm. part is, uh, is the hidden. Well, you see, now, Ross, I have seen uh, apocryphal misused as apocalyptic. So maybe it I've is I've definitely that. seen that, but I, I think I, I don't think so. I think that it's in this case it's being used, which is I've also seen, as I said, it's something momentous, something with with import. Well, you know what we have to do? We have to go back to the Baxter report and ask Mr. Baxter, what was he talking about? <laughs> Who is Mr. Baxter? <laughs> And why doesn't he know what apocryphal means? <laughs> or maybe he does. Maybe there's something we're missing. I don't think so in this case. But now I'm going to make a very clever segue here and say, now the Baxter report 
is that eponymous? Oh. <laughs> this is a word that I struggle with. Russ, I think you struggle with it. I, I, I don't use I don't this word ever for that reason. I have struggled with this and I've never used it, I think, in conversation. I'm sure I'll get it wrong tomorrow after we've explained it. And I understand it. Okay. The word is eponymous. What I'm going to give you the sentence. I'm giving you a sample sentence so you can tell me what's wrong and what's right with the sen- what's wrong or right. This is from the Washington Post. The sentence, his first record, the eponymous Bob Dylan, was filled with original songs alongside traditional songs. Right. So I first learned the word eponymous. uh, This is E-P-O-N-Y-M-O-U-S, because R.E.M., the rock band, named a it's it was sort of a best of hits type album. Um, they, They named that album eponymous. And mm-hmm. I didn't I didn't even think one thing or another about the title for the longest time until a, at some point I understood they named it that instead of just naming it R.E.M. Because mm-hmm. eponymous, I guess, is like w- when it's named after the thing that it's naming. I don't know. I, in this case, Bob Dylan obviously made a record called Bob Dylan. And that's his eponymous album named named for him. But I don't really know how this all works and why you can't say titular. I don't know what this means. Okay, well, this you actually hit the nail on the head when you said it. it, it it's right. An eponym is something that gives its name to something else. So this is where everyone misuses it technically. I mean, this is this is definitely a grammar purist thing we're going to go into here. Eponymous technically should be used to describe the name giver not the name receiver. So in the case of our the album, it shouldn't be the eponymous Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is the eponymous... <laughs> Bob Dylan's eponymous, not the album. I'm going to read oh. to you the sentence how it should be now. Here's a sentence as it should be, rather than as it was. His, I hate it. I hate this sentence. But this is correct <laughs> grammatically. His, And I think we should get rid of this word, but his first record, Bob Dylan, named after the eponymous musician. I'm going to repeat oh, it. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. His first record, Bob Dylan, named after the eponymous musician. Uh, when Kathy wrote this, when we wrote a little article on this, Kathy said, clunky, yes, but correct. And I think clunky, yes, but let's get rid of this word and this usage. I can't <laughs> let's, stand Please it. don't do that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I... I... <laughs> I feel like you ought to be able to use eponymous the other direction. <laughs> I, I like I like it better to say his eponymous album. Yeah. That, that's just nicer to me. And now I will say uh, my first instinct was you could just delete the word eponymous from that sentence. But that wouldn't necessarily get across the fact that it was Bob Dylan making the record called, called Bob Dylan. Um, so... So that would have been a bad edit on my part had I done that. But well, couldn't you just say what I would I would be Bob Dylan's first record named after himself was filled with. And we were talking about self, himself, herself. And here's a correct oh, yeah, usage. Right. Reflexive. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I think you could. But if you actually want to have the title of the record in there, then mm-hmm. then I can see I can see it written the way the way it was uh, with with the word eponymous in there. Um but it is clunky. I totally agree with that. And um, that that's that's really hard to remember. It is. I forget it each time. Yeah. I, I look at it and then I forget about it and I, I don't think I ever use it. Kath, do you ever use it? I never do. 
I do. I, I and I, I, I do. I and, and I am one of those people. One thing we found, which was shocking, is about eponymous. People love the word. I mean, it's we found in books it's used about six times more than it did since the 1800s. And when we did, we just checked. We just chucked it into Google and found it's more often used incorrectly, like used to describe the name receiver rather than the giver. Um, so I, I don't know. This is one where I don't know what to do because if you're using it the way we all agree sounds more correct, you're actually using it incorrectly. But it, the correct way sounds very wrong to me. Okay, I have a question. I have a question about about eponymous and titular. If you're talking about, let's say, Godzilla, you're talking about the movie named Godzilla, can you say the eponymous monster and also say the titular monster? That's a good one. Titular to me vaguely means something different. Uh, titular means something quite bit of different. Titular is either a, technically it's either a tradition, a title without any real authority or which we're not going to we're going to throw away because we're not. The queen is the titular head of the Queen of Church of England. She's not the real head. She's the theoretical head, formal head. Or denoting a person or thing from whom or which the name of an artistic work or similar is taken. So that's Actually, a, that sense no. is correct. The work's titular song. Okay. The OED has it, though, as a CF eponymous. <laughs> no, it is. I just realized the second definition is. Fletcher is right. Yeah. The second definition is the, wor the work's titular song. Bob Dylan's, uh, the, Bob Dylan's record then would be... Uh, the work's titular song, which is Bob Dylan, the name of the, the album. Right. So we can't. So yeah. you're, you're right. And he would be. Now, it, it doesn't. They can't. They aren't necessarily interchangeable because there are times when something could be titular, but not eponymous. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I've ever heard that sentence in my <laughs> <No>. life. Go on. <laughs> but it, in, the def, er, in the example I gave, Godzilla, it, it could be titular or eponymous. Uh, because because it's a because it's a proper name. Let's say I was talking about um, I don't know the movie The Professional, right? Do you remember that with yeah. with Jean Reno in it? Yeah. So mm -hmm. uh, he would be the titular professional, but he wouldn't be the eponymous professional because he's not named the professional. Oh gosh! Right. <laughs> you're right. Am I right? Yes. Okay. Yes, you're right. Move on. Move on. <laughs> I'm exhausted. And the next one's a killer, too. The next one just kills both of us. Oh, good. Yeah. It's an easy word, theoretically, and it's almost always misused. Ironic. Ever since Alanis Morissette's 1990s hit Ironic, people have been misusing this word. What, what was the, how did the, how did that how did that uh, song go, Kath? Do you remember? I don't. I don't. I, I used to know the lyrics. Believe me, I used to know the lyrics. Yeah. Okay. The, the point is, what is ironic? Define ironic for us, Fletcher. Oh, God. That's you can. So hard you've now. done more um, than we can. Okay. I know there are different kinds of irony. I know it's not just something um, bad that happens, like rain on your wedding day. It's like rain. Which is just an unfortunate. Right, that, thank you. That's <laughs> that's what I. Thank you. Which is just an unfortunate <laughs> thing that happens. But I I can never really nail down exactly what the definition of that word is. That's the key. Is everybody or most people? And I must throw myself in there. And I I'm probably you guys too. Is people tend to use ironic just to mean something that's coincidental or a little weird or or unusual or whatever. It's not technically, at the most basic thing. Irony, something that's ironic is when you say something or notice something that's the opposite of what's expected. 
the key is the notion of opposite. So it's it's something that's like it, not rain on your wedding day. But it's like rain. But like getting divorced on your wedding day would theoretically be <laughs> ironic. <laughs> we had we had such difficulty really defining it well. We ended up cribbing George Carlin brain droppings, which we thought was the best definition of irony that we could find. And I'm going to read you his quote. If a diabetic on his way to buy insulin is killed by a runaway truck, he is the victim of an accident. If the truck was delivering uh, delivering sugar, he is the victim of an oddly poetic co coincidence. But if the truck was delivering insulin, ah, then he is the victim of an irony. Ah, killed by the thing that he was going to get to to extend his life. Exactly. Precisely. I still have problems with irony. Now, this is a case where, and I don't know about you both, but I don't really mind it being used just to say, oh, because I do that a lot. I go, wow, that's really ironic. And I really am meaning it's ironic in that it's it's kind of unexpected and it's sort of like, you know, whoa, I didn't, you know, ha ha. Not, not the opposite, though. I think that I think you're right. I think that's a looser definition. And I think that's just fine. That's what I, I, I use the word, not in like maybe all the time in the technically correct way, but I think it's fine to use it in that looser definition. I couldn't even tell you what it meant properly. So I don't think I have any ground to stand on if I say something uh, opposite <laughs> to that. Um, I, I mean, I, I think I've, I've displayed here that I, I have to agree that that's fine. Now we're going to move on to something where I have no idea what the definition is. I don't think Kathy and does I think Fletcher will. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the word, is, we're going to see what the word is in a Telegraph article about the Sundance film censor. To pick the most mainstream example, look how Wes Craven's Scream, 1996, repurposed the slasher movie for winking postmodern fun. What does postmodern mean? For that matter, what does postmodern fun re mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, I don't know the uh, the actual exact definition of postmodernism as a movement. It is, I think, something that is often filled with irony, maybe. But uh, I, I don't, um, I, I can't tell you what that exact definition is. No. It's interesting because postmodern, we found, is being used all over. We found a sports article that was used to describe the Patriots is <laughs> in the football team. Wow. They're postmodern. Um, uh, everything is postmodern. Plastic surgery. We found a plastic surgeon talking about his postmodern plastic surgery practice. Uh, pain medicine is postmodern. I mean, and okay, on one hand, you could say it's merely something, you know, after modern. Technically, as the movement is, it's marked with breaking away from tradition. It's, it's that simple. You just chuck away all the rules. It was a, a, a blurring between high art and low art. There's a lot of pop culture involved. Aesthetic theory doesn't, doesn't apply. It's like anarchy. It's, it's artistic anarchy, I think, for lack of a better term. What do you think, Ross? Pretty much so. It's also turning, it's now, it's now sort of out because now we have post-postmodernism. And we have all Hope sorts of, the worst ones even worse confusing stuff. We looked up a couple of things. There's also pseudo-modernism, metamodernism, trans-postmodernism. Those are all actual uh, deriv derivations from postmodernism. I think it really gets to what Kathy is saying, though. It's sort of anarchy. And it's also uh, mixing formal with informal. I think it's really difficult to exactly define, though. 
And I think it's getting sort of ridiculous. I was going to add one last thing here. There's something called metamodernism, which is now taking over from postmodernism. And the guy used the example of informed naivete and, quote, moderate fanaticism. What the... What is moderate fanaticism? Tempered. <laughs> You're like nuts, but in a very, very small way. I'm moderately crazy about that. <laughs> Although, i got to say, though, what I like about post-postmodernism actually is less ironic and more sincere. So right. post-postmodernism is kind of like, wouldn't you argue that post-postmodernism then is really a reversion to pre-postmodernism. That's sort of what I was thinking, too. It seems like it's more traditional. It's like return to tradition. So, yeah. I don't know. The thing that surprised me is I didn't realize that I mean, postmodernism, in terms, as a term, um, entered English uh, back, like, the first example, I think, in the OED was, like, 19... Um, it was in the teens. 1916, I think. I mean, and it was used as a, then as a time reference. It wasn't a philosophical or artistic... Uh, Thing. And it didn't really take off until the 60s, mainly in the 70s, actually, was when it really went crazy. So, yeah, it, it seems super fuzzy and people are taking advantage of that. This is this is one of those words, maybe the first one we've mentioned here that has, has basically lost all its meaning to us. It seems to me that way. I don't I don't I think it means modern to me more than anything or hypermodern, maybe. I think it, it, I, I'm going to I'm going to go back to my thing. I think it's a lot of people just use it because it sounds sort of snappy and cool. I do. I think a lot of times people just slap postmodern on and, and, and yeah, it's just it's just a way of making something sound a little more intellectual. I think it's a moderately like fanatic way of putting things. <laughs> <laughs> what was that one again, Ross? What was the name of that movement? Uh, it was, um, let me go back. It was Metamodernism. The cultural theorists <laughs> uh, Timotheus Vermeulen and Robert Van den Acker introduced the term metamodernism, an intervention in the post-postmodernism debate. I wasn't aware there was a post-postmodernism debate anyway, but they did. Well, you've been busy. <laughs> so is that metmo? Uh, yeah. Metmo. Yeah, I don't see it. Informed naivete, moderate fanaticism. Okay, whatever. Oh, fan. Sorry. <laughs> I like all the I like the abbreviations better. I'm like a pomo girl. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, this one, I've got to, I've got, this is one I've got to admit that I, I have troubles. We're giving you two, two, two words in one in this one. And both of them drive me bonkers. This is a sentence from The New Yorker. Solacism slipped into solipsism into full-blown narciss narcissistic project. Let me repeat that. Solacism slipped into solipsism into full-blown narcissistic project. <laughs> okay. Um, I I had the feeling that solipsism w was based around maybe examining yourself a little too hard or being a little too interested in, in navel-gazing, as we call it. It basically comes back from the ancient Greek philosopher Gorgias, who basically summed the idea up of solipsism like this. One, nothing exists. Two, even if something does exist, you can't really know anything about it. And three, even if you do know something about it, you can't tell any others, which is very depressing. And so wow. therefore, solipsism basically, I mean, is the idea that all you, that you, all you can know is that you exist. Everything else you can't be too sure about. That's um, that's more extreme than I thought. <laughs> that's very postmodern. <laughs> Actually, it is, Kat. I think you're right. 
Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that is not moderately fanatical. <laughs> uh, solacism, solacism, I don't really know at all. Solacism is the easy one, too. And I, I've got to admit, I did not know that either. I've, it's a word that I've always blipped over, as Ross said at the beginning. It's just a fancy way of talking about a grammatical error. Or if you're not talking about language, a mistake. That's it. It's that simple. Yeah, it came from the ancient Greek again. There was a colony called Soloi. And the Athenians thought the Soloys were rubes and spoke really bad, unintelligible Greek. And it came on from there. Okay, so a grammatical error is a, is a solecism. And then what does this writer mean by saying the solecism slipped into solipsism? Okay, here's we, Kathy, I talked about this one. And do I'll, I'll give a stab at it, and then Kathy can correct me if it's wrong. Basically, mm. grammatical error slipped into basically self-referential, I have no idea what I'm talking about into a full-blown narcissistic this is only about me yeah awesome that that's great yeah that i mean that, that really what i wanted to know was what does this person mean when they say solipsism you gave me the you gave me the the really philosophical definition but i wasn't exactly sure what they what they meant when they said it in this in this way wh what people mean when they say it in in modern day writing, that sort of thing. But I liked that what you said, the self, self-referential and not really knowing what you're talking about. Well, I should add that this would have helped a lot contextually because um, he was referring to the sentence referred to a brochure for, for Trump hotels. So <laughs> <laughs> that, that makes it a little clearer, I think. Yeah, yeah. Okay, moving on, we're going to go basically to two words that are in the news a lot. And um, we know what they mean, kind of. We just want to make sure we really know what they mean. And uh, the first is transgender. What does it technically mean, Fletcher? I, I don't know technically whether we, we needed to have some kind of physical uh, change or whether Precisely technically, as you're going to say it, if that extends into people who are living their lives as the gender that they are, um, as opposed to necessarily their biological sex at birth. You just hit the nail on the head, and that's why we wanted to bring this one up, because it's so funny. It's a word that's so in the news now, and we're all using it, and I think everybody gets a little fuzzy. It technically is as simple as a person whose gender identity differs from the one that they were identified with at birth. Okay. Period. Okay. It's that simple. It doesn't mean you've necessarily taken hormones. It doesn't mean you've necessarily had surgery. It doesn't even necessarily mean mean you're living with the appearance of a different gender it is simply the gender identity that's it which is which is so nice and basic you know and now we're going to move on to what i like because i told kathy the origins and kath didn't know and it's sort of fun cisgender yes yeah, cisgender i i understand to mean someone who lives with the gender identity that corresponds with what they were assigned at birth you're right and here's the thing that was sort of fun that about was really this. Nicely you know worded. The, uh, this is the one i sort of like do you know the origins of the word no that i don't i've i have i've always wondered that i thought this was sort of cool in latin cis um means on this side of so it's on this side of gender Trans means across, on the other side of gender. And it comes basically from the Latin, if any of you ever studied, like uh, Caesar, he's always referring to cisalpine Gaul and uh, transalpine Gaul. Cisalpine Gaul is the Gaul on this part of the Alps. Trans is on the other side of the Alps. So cis basically just means on this side of. Huh. Which I thought it was sort of cool. Yeah. I was that interested me because I had I never knew why it's cisgender. It's like one of those things where you just you hear the term, you go, oh, okay. But I had no I never I, I kind of wondered. <laughs> yeah. That's why I was glad when you came up with that, Ross. 
before we go, I want to mention something I tweeted about, but uh, I always like it when words that we've talked about in the past come up in the wild for me. And this is one of those words that, that we've had on a similar episode in the past. It's one of those words that people often use and don't exactly know what they mean. I was watching an episode of Columbo from the first season all the way back in 1971, and a, a character who was an art critic used the phrase, Goya was the penultimate artist. I and saw was, that. I saw your <laughs> and tweet. And it wasn't like he was talking about the exhibit you just saw. He was saying something like, his exquisite technique shows us that Goya was the penultimate artist. Yeah, no, I saw well, your yeah, tweet on that. Yeah, there was Goya, then there was Picasso, and then <laughs> there was artist, right? right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, <laughs> that's the only conclusion we can really draw, right? <laughs> that fascinating. So did he say it with like sort of like boo-hoo-hoo? Like the penultimate? Not just that, but he was he was on television. I don't know if this is something they did in 1971 in Los Angeles was have art critics give their criticisms on television, but he was <laughs> it was as if it were his show and he he ended it with Goya was the penultimate artist. <laughs> <laughs> I, just I love that one. I really do. I just love it. Of course he was the murderer too, so you know. <laughs> of course. This episode of You're Saying It Wrong has been produced by me, Fletcher Powell, help from Beth Golay and Luann Stevens in the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. Kathy Petrus records from her home in Seattle, Washington, Ross Petrus from his home in Toronto, Ontario. If you have a question for Kathy and Ross, you can tweet it at us. We're at YSIWpod. Email them at kandrpetrus at gmail.com or email me at powell at kmuw.org. And if you like what we're doing, leave us a rating or even a review at Apple Podcasts. Those reviews help us. They're how we get more people to find us. Kathy and Ross's book, You're Saying It Wrong, was published by 10 Speed Press. You can find that and much of their other work pretty much anywhere you get books. We recommend your local independent bookstore. And, of course, Kathy and Ross are always up to something. You can check out their other work through their website, kandrpetras.com. That's K-A-N-D-R-P-E-T-R-A-S dot com. Thanks for joining us. We'll be back in two weeks.